and it was really hard to raise that next round. Um, we eventually were able to raise another million dollar round, but you know, it was tough. And there was a moment I remember where, you know, I was throwing out the idea of just kind of potentially selling to another company that I knew of in, in a similar space. Welcome everybody to the Making the Brand podcast. My name is Billy Draper. I'm a venture capitalist at Draper Associates, but on this show, we're gonna be talking about brands. We'll talk to founders and leaders of growing consumer companies that are finding ways to stand out, differentiate, and delight their customers. On today's show, we talk to Jonathan Shokrian and Brian Lalazarian, the brilliant minds behind MeUndies. They teach us how an uncomfortable interaction at the department store can lead to a giant consumer business. We are here with the masterminds behind MeUndies underwear brand, Jonathan Shokrian and Brian Lalazarian. Uh, first of all, guys, I just want to say thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. Of course. Thanks, Billy. So to start out, what is MeUndies? MeUndies is, we're a direct-to-consumer brand of men's and women's underwear. We sell our products primarily online at MeUndies.com and We've started to build an offline experience with brick and mortar stores that we can talk about in a little bit. But at the end of the day, we're we're here to inspire confidence and individuality through ridiculously fun and comfortable underwear. Uh, we started uh, in a world where there are legacy brands that don't talk to the modern consumer the way we feel we should be talking to the modern consumer. So um, part of our story is kind of going direct, really building that relationship with the customer. We have an obsessive focus on creating amazing products. Our underwear is better than anything else you'll find in the market. And we have a lot of fun doing it. So we're excited to tell you our story. Yeah, so let's get into that. So tell me about your backgrounds. How, what did you do before this? How did you end up in the uh, undergarments biz? Before me undies, this is Jonathan. Um, I was working in real estate with my family office. Uh, we were managing and developing properties, uh, you know, in, in Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles area, and then in Dallas. But around the same time, I also started, I took one of my family members' businesses online. He was a direct-to-consumer seller for uh, Philips. And I took his entire product category line and I put it on eBay. And that was like my first experience with e-commerce and quickly became one of the top 200 eBay sellers. And Jonathan, you founded this, initially you were alone, right? Yeah, I founded the company. I had a childhood best friend, Brock Diskin, who launched it with me. And he was around pretty much for the, almost the first year. And how did you decide to start an underwear company? It really came out of like a, a really funny, frustrating experience one day. Uh, I was going on a trip with some friends and didn't have enough underwear for the two-week trip and found myself uh, in Macy's uh, asking a woman where the underwear section was. And um, I don't know why it felt so terrifying to ask an older woman where, where the underwear section is, but she pointed me in the right direction. And I was, you know, I needed to stock up, didn't, like I said, didn't have enough. And I was trying to buy the, my go-to pair of Calvin Klein boxer briefs. And when I got home, uh, I ended up buying like workout underwear by Calvin Klein and it was a pretty terrible experience. 
they were like $30 each. And, you know, it was kind of like the aha moment, you know, that a, like it's, it's pretty confusing when you go into a department store within each brand, you have so many different styles and skews and colors. And I really wanted to create like an easier experience and a more premium product. And quite frankly, was also pretty annoyed that I had to pay $30 a pair for underwear that was kind of deemed premium, but I felt kind of lacked quality. Okay. So that's where you discovered the problem. How did you, what, what happened in between that and deciding I'm going to make this my life? Yeah. So, you know, about a week later, my trip starts and I'm with my childhood best friend, Jonathan Neiman, who started Sweetgreen and was telling him about this whole experience and was really telling him how I wanted to start something that really allowed uh, men and women to always have fresh basics. And at the time, you had a couple subscription companies just kind of launching. You had Shoe Dazzle that was, you know, had just kind of uh, had their early success. And I thought if if it could work for shoes, it could definitely work for um, your basics and underwear particularly. And how did you decide on the name MeUndies? Right, right then and there, funny enough, uh, we, I was um, in a coffee shop with him and pulled up GoDaddy and was just searching for various different names. And that was one of the ones that uh, I ended up purchasing. And that was it. Simple as that. Yeah, we wanted to keep it you know, fun and not too serious. And it was a name that we thought was really sticky. And uh, I was really surprised that it was actually available. And how did you raise your initial capital? A lot of it came from uh, friends and family. Um, actually, Brian and I come from the same uh, background. We're, we're Persian Jews in LA. And so we have it's a pretty tight-knit community. And you know, I had helped my friend, Jonathan Neiman, uh, and I invested in his uh, company. And so there was a network of, you know, family and friends that I reached out to and guilted them basically into investing the first 400 grand. (laughs) And what did the first 400 grand go to? The first 400 grand basically went to, you know, early Facebook ads, developing the product, the website, um, and just kind of getting launched. I mean, you make so many mistakes early on that um, you know, we had, we had a PR company early on that we had on retainer. And so, I mean, there was definitely some mistakes we made along the way, definitely on the production side. Um, it took a little bit longer than we liked. Um, but it went to basically building out that, the foundation of the company. And you mentioned Facebook ads. How did, how else did you get the word out early? I know it's common these days to hear about MeUndies on podcasts, to see it on billboards. Um, you know, it's, it's in my Instagram feed. What were your sort of most effective marketing tools early on? Yeah. So it kind of happened by accident. One morning I woke up and we were on Uncrate, um, which is a really popular men's blog. Um, and it was by far the most traffic that we've ever had to the site and the highest revenue we've ever had. And so we saw that, you know, the, the customer coming through on crate definitely, you know, highly indexed against who we were trying to sell to and ended up striking a deal with them over the next couple of years to have placed advertorials on their site. 
Um, and so early on, that was a, a huge part of our success. And you mentioned some supply chain issues. What challenges did you face early on? Well, we really wanted to manufacture in the U.S. And so doing so wasn't really easy. Um, you know, we were running around downtown L.A., uh, meeting with fabric vendors, uh, meeting with elastic suppliers, meeting with cut and sew um, places. And it was just so separated out um, that it made it really difficult where, you know, overseas, you really have the opportunity to find one vertical manufacturer that that can do kind of everything uh, in-house. Um, and it, it actually ends up being a little bit uh, it's way more efficient as well, um, cost efficient as well. And so, uh, although we really wanted it, to, although we really wanted to manufacture our products here, it really ended up being more viable um, from a logistical standpoint. Not having to go through you know three, four different factories to produce your goods, but also from a cost and time perspective as well. And what about on the sales customer side? Did you have any trouble? finding your customers or selling or getting your cost of acquisition down to make sense? Yeah, I mean, th this is this is the biggest challenge for direct consumer e-commerce, right? It's, there are a lot of players coming in the space. And I think one, one thing you don't realize is, yeah, you don't have the cost of rent like a brick and mortar store may, but you have to literally drive all your traffic. Like otherwise no one's ever going to find you. So our kind of challenge early on and still to this day is always about how do we get the word out in a smart way where we're telling the right story and we're, we're being smart in how we're spending. So, I mean, I think in the early days when we were really strapped for cash, uh, we had to find creative ways to make some noise. Um, and, you know, in, in, the, in that time, this is what, like 2012, Facebook advertising was a whole different beast than it is today. It was like the Wild West. It did, we didn't have... First of all, it wasn't as crowded as it is now, and, and it wasn't as sophisticated either, but it was a lot easier to um, push traffic to your site and, and, and acquire customers. It was like shooting fish in a barrel at that time, yeah. right? Um, I mean, it's become much more crowded today. But. Yeah, you, don't, you didn't have the sophistication of like audiences and whatnot. Like, yeah. I remember placing our first few ads, and you know, it was basically like people who like Warby Parker, Right. Like those, you know, people who like their pages and, and you would just basically try and find buckets and some of the buckets worked and paid off and had great CPAs and some of them weren't so great. So it was kind of hit or miss. And now you can get into sort of age and gender and location and, and all sorts of stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's night and day uh, compared to what it was like then. I mean, there's it's like more, way more interest based. It's now it's like based on your audiences and lookalikes and last click. And I mean, there's so many different ways. Right. It was also mostly desktop then. That's also a big change. Uh, I mean, mobile is, is something like 70% of traffic now, whereas it was almost the opposite in the early days. And how did you decide on price point in the early days? Yeah, I mean, there was. It, I wish we maybe were a little bit more scientific about it, but the underwear that I was wearing was about thirty dollars, and we basically wanted to deliver a product at half the cost, uh, direct to the consumer. 
um, while still maintaining a, a higher quality product. So it, it was it was a little bit of a challenge early on because we didn't get the economy of scale till you know years later in terms of our cost of goods. But you know we we weren't totally focused on margin at first. We, we just really wanted to make a great product and see if people were buying it and enjoy the brand. And then really kind of dove in on, you know, costing later on. And how did you two meet? So how did, how, when, when in the process and when in the company's life cycle did Brian come on? Um, so, so as John mentioned, we actually kind of knew each other growing up. Uh, I actually went to elementary through high school with John's sisters. Our parents were friends for many, many years. They still are to this day. And, um, at the time when John launched the company, I was actually in like my first year of business school. It's kind of my summer between year one and two. Before that, I, I had worked in finance and I worked in private equity where I was kind of investing in much bigger companies, meeting great management teams. And when I went to business school, I knew I wanted to get more on the operational side and actually get my hands dirty building something. To me, that was just a lot more exciting. So at some point, John kind of reached out and was telling me about the story of MeUndies and, and, uh, he was in New York actually doing a photo shoot. So I met up with him there and I actually became a customer. So I, I was a, I was an early subscriber. Um, basically my second year of school, I was, I had probably about 12 pairs through that year. And then when I moved back home to LA, I was kind of trying to figure out what my next move was going to be. And it kind of like one thing led to another, uh, Jonathan Neiman that he mentioned basically called me up and, 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 and uh, just kind of like pass this idea of like, why don't you connect with John at MeUndies and see if you guys can work together. And so we, you know, I, I started kind of as a very part-time consultant um, when I was still figuring out my life. And uh, I fell in love with the brand, fell in love with uh, the company and the people there. And I think John and I just felt very, very much complimentary in our backgrounds and and it kind of became really clear, like how we can work together and, and build this great brand together. So that's when that started. That was about uh, March 2013. And um, yeah, that's how we got started. And I, I can't say when I joined, I expected this is where we would go. It was more kind of like, this sounds fun. Let's do it. Let's figure it out. And uh, I think it's been an incredibly humbling and amazing experience the past couple of years, five years. And with other apparel brands, people can see them being worn. Um, you see the Nike swoosh. Uh, you know, you see the the red Louboutin bottoms. How do you deal with that with underwear, where people aren't seeing them? How do you get that sort of viral coefficient? Great question. Um, so we just we've never been fans of kind of like stamping our logo all across our product. So even our basic tees that we sell, they're all very plain. Our underwear, which is our core product. They all have a black waistband with kind of purple on the inside, but it doesn't say the name anywhere. So you don't see something like, you know, big block Calvin Klein letters stamped all over. And I mean, I think to us that was important for the brand. It's more about the people and less about kind of using them as advertisement per se. Um, and we wanted to keep it like pretty, pretty basic and clean in the design. Um, so it's challenging. I, I think like, you know, in terms of how do we then get the name out visually to people uh, we've tried different things you know i mean i think first and foremost it's word of mouth like trying to deliver an amazing experience to wow people so they talk about it and one of the funny things is with underwear 
it's not really a product people talk about that often. A lot of people aren't very comfortable talking about it. I mean, me and John talk about it all the time, so it's normal. <laughs> but whenever, I would imagine you do. Whenever we bring it up to someone, even if it's like we're meeting with a potential vendor in our office or someone and we talk about our underwear, people tend to giggle, they get shy, they get nervous. Um, so it's just naturally not something customers are always talking about. But I think the way we've marketed our product and kind of the brand and the story we're telling it's amazing to see people on social sporting their underwear, showing their waistband, posting pictures on Instagram of their product. And we've kind of, we've taken the really boring old category and made it fun. So people, you know, when I run into someone to talk about MeUndies, their reaction is like, oh my God, I love MeUndies. They're amazing. And I tell my friends about it. Like that, that sort of conversation never really existed with underwear. So I think that kind of helps with, with the, the visual kind of just lacking the logo on the product. Like people talk about it uh, and it's a more engaging story at the end of the day. And did you guys ever have that aha moment where you started to feel like this actually might be working? Yeah. So it's funny enough, you know, Brian and I were talking about this the other day. Um, the aha moment for me at least was when I saw this article that Warren Buffett was uh, announced that he's launching uh, Fruit of the Loom subscription underwear. Um, that that kind of did it for me. <laughs> that is incredible. That's how you know you've made it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we were mentioned in there. It was a Bloomberg article where we're mentioned like brands like MeUndies have already began this business model. Yeah. yeah, when you start causing a stitch in the side of the of the big of the big uh, incumbents. Well, you know, we we I launched MeUndies side by side, Mike Dubin at Dollar Shave, and I think like when you saw Gillette trying to launch their own subscription service and fail, that's kind of like you know they they'll first try and copy you, and hopefully then they'll come try and acquire you. Would that be a successful outcome for you? What are you thinking in terms of? uh exit in terms of what do you want the next steps to be what what's your vision for the company in the next five or ten years well i mean we're still having a lot of fun and so i i can't sit here and tell you that we've got like a day or a time plan on when we want to exit or or a number um you know we're we're really excited about retail and expanding into that world um it's it's a big one simon ventures is one of our largest inventor investors and a strategic one. And so, you know, I think the next phase for us is really kind of building that physical presence for the brand and then seeing where it goes. Yeah. I mean, but I think like, I think just big picture, like we, there, we look at the industry, there are brands out there. I mean, particularly on the, on the woman's side, Victoria's Secret's an obvious one. These are $10 billion companies and it's a pretty big market. And so we just see a ton of opportunity to, to continue growing, and kind of like we want to be a household name in underwear for the modern generation. So our our view has always been like building an incredible brand and being that number one go-to for underwear where people love what we do, love our product, and can't imagine wearing anything else. And we think if we continue doing that and moving in that direction, the exit or the, the dollars will follow. That's kind of how we think about it. Do you have any near-term ideas for new product offerings or new categories? I mean, there's always new categories and things that we're thinking about. We're, we've really tried to maintain uh, focus in in being great at selling underwear. I think some some of the problems you face when you over-sort is you just start losing um, 
your reputation per se and if you don't really match the same quality um so we've we've made great underwear i think we make the best underwear on the market um but we've tried to really stay intentional i mean we sell socks and t-shirts that are amazing and we've got other other plans uh on our roadmap nothing that i really feel that i would want to announce right now because we love to keep the surprise but within the world of loungewear and underwear you know we've got some room to expand and so let's talk about today. How are things going now? How big is the company? Where are you? Um, so we, we have a team of about 120 people uh, across two offices in Los Angeles. We have our headquarters in Culver City, and then we have a 30,000 square foot warehouse and fulfillment center in the city of Commerce, which is uh, about half an hour away, uh, where we do all of our own fulfillment. So every product that you buy from us gets handpicked and packed with our team. Uh, and, and it's kind of, we send out all around the world. We have a, a small uh, group or, or agency we work with up in Victoria, Canada on the engineering side, and we have another team in Asia. And then we have vendors across the world actually making our products. So we have a pretty global footprint at this point. I mean, it's taken many years to, to build that scale and, and, and cast that net. But, um, you know, where we are today, we're, we're very focused on building out our team um, kind of evolving to like the next level of operations, bringing in some really strong senior leadership across the board, across marketing, operations, a lot, a lot of different departments. So we've been very focused on making sure we're kind of building a strong foundation. So as we, as we continue to grow, we're able to support that and continue to innovate more and more. And how do you, how do you two divide your responsibilities? <laughs> Yeah, so I I primarily oversee customer support, um, creative brand and marketing. Yeah, and I and this is Brian. I, I focus more on kind of operations, finance, strategy, engineering. So it's a little bit of like an art and science. Um, that's kind of a little bit of how how we overlap. Um, I think we found over the years that we're becoming more like each other over time, <laughs> but. Um, I think like, Re- regressing uh, to the mean. <laughs> yeah, which is good actually. Uh, it's uh, it's yeah. I think the balance is nice, but it's it's also the more and more you you res- like understand and and empathize and respect the other side, like the more you start becoming like each other. It's 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 better for the partnership too. And how do you think about delighting your customers? This is the Making the Brand podcast. And so we like to talk about um, how companies treat their customers, how they think about delighting their customers, how they, you know, more specifically, how do you interact with your customers and and, and take their input? Um, you know, you mentioned social. So tell me a little bit about that. I mean, for me, it's, it's all the little things that I think add up to the big things. Um, it's the fast reply times on Instagram, Facebook, email, phones, right? Like that's a given. You, you can't have people waiting for a response. And you really have to understand how people use different channels for different purposes, right? Um, you know, normally you'll see someone pretty heated go tend, tend to go to Twitter first, right? Um, so it's really being able to you know, turn a bad situation into a good situation by delighting a customer or just surprising someone. You know, if a customer just as like for fun posts a photo of their dog, ate their MeUndies and aren't really looking for a replacement pair, that's where our team kind of jumps in and, you know, will surprise and delight them and send a replacement pair out. 
Um, you know, similarly internally as a company, we try and like follow the same. We like to treat our customers the way we like to treat our team. So, you know, if we have a team member out sick, um, you know, we'll, we'll postmate them a care package of, you know, uh, remedies to make them feel better. And so I think like when you apply that same thing to your team and you're applying it to your customer and you're just thinking of all the little details along the way, you know, the inserts that go into it, you know, the packaging, you know, who's packing that order and really making sure that they're putting love in every single order that's going out. Like the customer in the end will, will feel all these different touch points and it just adds to the entire experience. Do you have any fun customer stories? I feel like selling underwear might lend itself to some fun stories. Yeah, I mean, fun now. I'll let Brian answer them because they're probably stressful for him then. But <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll tell you some. So a few years ago, actually, this is many years ago, uh, we almost caused a divorce in a, in a customer. So this is a fun story. When, when we were younger, we would um, we wanted to kind of like – embellish the membership experience and we would we would partner with other companies to throw in little gifts into the packages like maybe an uber gift card this is before uber was uber um and at one point we were putting condoms in our packages we had mostly male customers and, and we had there was a cool condom company we were working with and we were dropping condoms in these packages and one of our customers what he would do every month when he received the package he would just open the bag and just dump it in his underwear drawer not realizing what was in there and so he sends us an email <laughs> where his wife had found this condom and suspected that he was cheating on her because he was wondering what, what he's doing with it. So we had to actually support this customer and, and explain to his wife that, yes, in fact, we did send the condom just to back him up. So we ended up saving his marriage. I think they're all good now. <laughs> but <laughs> that was a fun story. That is hilarious. That is absurd. We do think we do think uh, former President Obama may be a customer as well. For for I'm not kidding you about like a hundred days straight, we would send a handwritten note and a black pair of boxer briefs to the White House, addressed to Obama, like as a gift. Every day we sent a pair. So either he's wearing it or some Secret Service agents are wearing our product. But someone in the White House, hopefully, is wearing our product right now. <laughs> <laughs> what What happened on day 101? You just decided to give up. No, I mean, I wish we saw it all the way through. It was supposed to be the, the challenge was to do it for a year. And I think somewhere along the way, other things kind of just trumped it. Wow, that's a good pun. <laughs> not not <laughs> yeah. a oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so at any point along the way, um, you know, you had early struggles uh, with, with uh, the product line, you had uh, it, it sounds sort of like a fairy tale story, but were, was there ever was there ever a point where either of you decided or thought about deciding to call it quits? Yeah, I mean, I would, just to be really honest, like early on the first year, um, you know, there were some challenging moments with my first founder, who's one of my oldest childhood friends. And it was like kind of a classic story as soon as we kind of were, we were running out of that first 400,000. And it was really hard to raise that next round. Um, we were, eventually were able to raise another million dollar round. But, you know, it was tough. And there was a moment I remember where, you know, I was throwing out the idea of just kind of potentially selling to another company that I knew of in, in a similar space. 
Um, but thankfully we kind of like pushed through and, um, I met Brian and, you know, I was able to establish a great partnership with him and kind of push forward. And how do you deal with the competition? You built out, um, this industry. Now I think you can call it an industry of direct to consumer underwear products. And it, like you said, uh, like you mentioned with Warren Buffett, this every, big player in the space has started to offer something similar. And then on the other side, behind you, you have a number of startups that are trying to sort of eat away at your market share. How do you deal with competition? How do you think about it? I think um, the reality is like in the consumer space with underwear or any category, like it's, it's always very fragmented. There are a lot of players. So it's never going to be like an Uber versus Lyft type of competition where one of us is going to be a 70% player. Um, so I think the key is like continue to be authentic to your brand, like being authentic to your customers and, and building a brand that they really resonate with. You have to do that. Um, I think the way we kind of out hustle some of like the fruit of the looms of the world is through innovation, through, um, through some of the technology we're building, uh, connecting through our customers through Instagram, like doing things in a way that, uh, I think they're, they're just going to have a hard time recruiting the right talent and, and being authentic in that story. Uh, for some of the newer players, I mean, you're right. There have been a lot of, I mean, almost like every other day I go on Facebook, I'll see another brand that looks like they're trying to make a product that looks very similar to us. Maybe they'll price it like a dollar cheaper or something. Um, you know, for now, we're not really too worried about those players. I, I think, like John mentioned in the early years, it's really hard to get to where we've gotten to get that scale. Like it just, it's one of those things like kind of like what happens with restaurants where it just like, it looks easy from the outside to just, Oh, I'm going to open a restaurant and I'm really good at making sandwiches. I'm going to open a sandwich shop or, you know, the same thing with here. It looks really easy to make this underwear and, and sell it online, put up some Facebook ads. But in reality to get to the scale that we've gotten and, the supply chain that exists behind the scenes to manufacture what we're doing at the scale that we're doing it. It's really hard. We have some amazing partners. Uh, we're, we're literally manufacturing our product alongside some of the best brands in the world with some of the best factories in the world. And it's not easy to get access to that. And uh, so I think like, I think a lot of these newer players may think it's easy stepping in, but I think they're going to struggle kind of getting to a more meaningful place. But in the, at the end of the day, like we have to be authentic and continue to innovate. That's really the way to kind of continue building a brand going forward. And that means. And. Oh, go on. I was going to say, like retail is a big thing for us. Um, you know, it's, it's a pretty new part of our business. It's, it's like a startup within a startup. Um, we've opened a store in Palo Alto at Stanford Shopping Center. And we're opening a second store uh in about a month and a half here in, in Los Angeles at the Westfield Century City Mall. And, uh, you know, that's a, a really exciting kind of new way for us to put the brand out in the world and interact with customers and continue to kind of get ahead of the game. So it's it's a constant push forward. There's a lot we have to continue doing to grow. What advice, if any, do you have for, for founders looking to get into the consumer goods space or the apparel space? If, if you had to crystallize it into one piece of advice, um, what would you tell them or what have you told them? Be, be smart about the way you raise money. I think that's first and foremost. Yeah. I think a lot of people make the mistake. I mean, a lot of people make the mistakes of over raising 
or wanting to, you know, raise a huge round, you know, series A, B or wherever it is. And it really kind of puts you in a position where you've got to grow unreasonably fast with economics that don't make sense and, you know, start chasing um, valuations. Um, Whereas I think we've been really, really capital efficient, smart with how we've grown the company. There's been companies that that have grown way faster than us in a shorter period of time that don't exist anymore. So I think just remaining patient and, you know, being very capital efficient from day one and, and counting pennies, literally. And do you have anything that you want to shamelessly plug besides Obama, please wear MeUndies and the Palo Alto store? Shameless plugs. I don't know, Brian, what, you got any? I can't think of it. Go to MeUndies.com and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, well, Jonathan and Brian, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I, I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, and keep up the great work. I'm, I am a, I am a happy and loyal customer. Thanks. We appreciate the support. Thanks, Billy. All right. All right. Thanks guys. Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, I hugely appreciate it. Um, truly, truly, uh, it makes a big difference. Uh, hopefully you're having as much fun listening to these things as I am having making them. Feel free, if you liked what you heard, to subscribe to the Making the Brand podcast in the podcasts app. I will be releasing new episodes every week, and we have some more fun ones coming up. So here we go. Have a wonderful week. Thank you.